The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited to introduce to you my special guest this week and dear friend, General Hugh Shelton, who has graciously agreed to return to the show. Welcome back to A Current Life, Hugh. Thanks very much, Jimmy. It's great to be with you as usual. Well, as a friend and as someone that has tremendous respect for our military, I'd like to take a minute or two and properly reintroduce you to our new audience. General Shelton is one of the most celebrated military figures of our time. While serving our country, he has earned an impressive collection of military awards, including the Bronze Star Medal for Valor and the Purple Heart. He has also earned a number of civilian awards and has been decorated by 16 foreign governments. In 2001, he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II. I'd like to thank you so much, Hugh, for your service. Our country will forever be indebted to you and the other fine men that serve our country in the armed forces. Well, thank you very much, Jimmy, and I'd like to relay that same uh, that same thanks to all those great men and women serving today, as well as our great veterans of the past. Well, for our newer listeners, General Shelton was on our show last December 2nd. If you missed that episode, I urge you to log on to our host page website and download the archive files by going to voiceamerica.com and clicking on the Variety Channel and then clicking on A Current Life. A few months have passed since then, so I'd like to know what's been going on in your life for you and for your uh, lovely wife, Carolyn, and what you've been up to. Well, thanks, Jimmy. We've, uh, Carolyn and I have been uh, traveling rather extensively to include trips to uh, Brussels, to uh, Paris, to uh, Germany, uh, a, number of, uh, a number of trips across country out to the West Coast, as well as uh, from Florida up to New York. It's uh, and some exciting things that I'm involved in today, primarily board duties, speaking, and, and then uh, helping veterans organizations wherever I can. Well, I know that while you were in Washington and even in your years leading up to being appointed chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, life moved well, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a speeding bullet train, and you were constantly under scrutiny, life-altering decisions for millions of people that had to be made in seconds, and everyone had an opinion on the choices that had to be made. How difficult was it for you to transition from the highest military position in the U.S. to kind of everyday life, and, and how did you go about doing it? Well, to be very candid, Jimmy, it was, it was really quite easy because, uh, first and foremost, I'm an individual that has always enjoyed doing things for myself, and, and by that I mean I was out trimming a tree in my backyard when I fell, and I could have easily have paid someone to do that. However, I, I just, I'm a hands-on kind of person. I like to do things like that. And so, 
I I really was. I think my age would classify me as a low maintenance general. I didn't take a lot of uh, looking after. I kind of enjoyed doing things on my own, and so the transition was relatively easy. And on top of that, I found that the skill sets that the military uh, had trained me in, and that I had in the environment that I'd worked in for 38 years very easily allowed me to transition into the corporate boardroom, uh, into the speaking circuit across the United States. And so it was, it was really very, a very easy transition. Did I miss it? I missed that a lot. And the answer is uh, I missed the people because I worked with a tremendous number of great individuals from, from privates up through generals and admirals. But uh, in terms of the transition itself, I did not miss it because I continued to work with very similar types of people in, uh, in the corporate world. Do you think it's tough for a lot of people? You know, I, I know we talk about people who really give 24-7 of their lives and have to leave their families and do various things, whether it's in the military or, or sometimes even in, in sports and various things like that. Do you think most people have trouble transitioning when they've been in that type of position and back into the kind of everyday civilian life or just ordinary life? You know, I'd be less than honest if I didn't say yes to that, Jimmy, because I've, I find in a lot of cases, particularly among our, our senior military officers and our senior non-commissioned officers, that they are a little bit apprehensive about what lies on the other side, if you will, when they, when they elect to take off the uniform. And they're a little bit, uh, there's a lot of anxiety associated with that. And, and as a result, I think even a certain degree of fear about what awaits them as they have to leave. And so they try to stay as long as they can. But I've found that uh, those that, that say, you know, there's another life out there, I'm going to jump into it, I'm going to seek opportunities, uh, do very, very well because people immediately recognize the quality of individuals that they're getting when they, when they latch on to these these uh, senior officers and senior non-commissioned officers, and so it becomes an easy transition, but it is one that they're somewhat anxious about. Well, I do think, as you mentioned on the last show, that faith plays such a large role in your life. You've been tested so many times and overcome it and through some just Herculean things that have happened throughout your life that certainly when people uh, listen to the past show and, 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 and listen to this show, they'll learn about you. But uh, how has faith played such a large part in your life? Well, faith uh, certainly, uh, it, you know, it goes, as I addressed a, a group of graduating high school students in Atlanta the other day, I, I said, you know, you first of all, you, you learn early on in life, I think, and I was certainly taught by my parents, uh, you're never defeated unless you accept defeat, that you should always look for alternative ways of accomplishing things, and, uh, and that it, the harder you work, the luckier you're going to get. So I think when fate deals you a uh, what you normal, normally people would consider to be a raw hand, if you will, or it didn't go the way you had hoped it would go, to, to be able to just to pick it up from there and, and look for other means of getting where you'd like to go. I mean, certainly uh, when they told me I could not go to North Carolina State because my math scores were not good enough out of high school, although I was a straight-A student, I didn't accept that. I took a correspondence course, which almost killed me that summer. I had to do it at night, but I eventually got into NC State. When they told me that, you know, I had a color vision defect and I couldn't go to airborne school or, or ranger school, I didn't accept that. I looked for another way to, to get there, and I eventually passed that test and, was, it went, and became an airborne ranger. And, of course, you know the fall from the ladder and being told I'd never walk again. So there were a whole series of things like that, and you just – 
you, you don't you don't take it lying down, so to speak. You get up and, and go at it from a different direction and, and still keep your goals in sight and work hard to achieve them. Do you think that's something that's taught or that we're born with or that you acquire? Do you think it's something that you learn from, you know, influencers, mentors in your life? And, and because you have such a calm effect on people when you meet them. I know when we met, I instantly you know, felt that from you, and yet, you know, you've been thrust into situations, which we'll talk about later, such as the September 11th, uh, when you were chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you know, now almost 11 years ago. Uh, what makes that happen, and in, in, you think, in some people and not in others? I think maybe there are a couple of things there. First and foremost, I think, certainly being raised with uh, by the parents that I had that, in, that imbued in me the, the, the qualities that, that have guided my life in terms of my character, integrity, ethics, etc. Uh, being raised uh, in, a, in a church that uh, valued religion, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian and proud of it, and that gives me a great deal of faith and, and confidence in myself and in my own abilities. And so it, it's a com- and then I've had role models throughout my career, people that I could look at and say, boy, when I grow up, I want to be like him or her. And, uh, and trying to, to basically, I won't say, uh, simulate their behavior, but certainly taking from their behavior those things that I admired so much and trying to make sure that I responded in the same way. So I think all of those things had a had a great deal to do with it. But you know, as I tell the audiences, like my the uh, class I spoke to in Atlanta this past weekend or past week, I said, you know, it's faith, family, and friends. And when you've got a lot of each of those, uh, it gives you great confidence in yourself, in your abilities, and you know that there are others around you that will support you in whatever decision that you make as well. Well, I know that the transition for soldiers coming home, whether due to injury or because their tour duties up, they've been gone maybe a long time, their families have been behind, children have been born, various things can be very difficult for them. How do we help to make a better, smoother transition for them from following you know, their lives overseas and their fight to protect our freedoms to really acclimating back here into the everyday life? What do you think we could do? You know, as a society, number one, as a government, number two, and maybe even as private citizens do to, to, to help ease that transition. Well, I think first and foremost, Jimmy, is something that is going on right now and has been going on. And I know from day one we talked a lot about it up in Washington, and that was making sure that we did everything possible to, to keep the American people behind the efforts of the soldiers. And they may not agree with whatever political decisions are made, but uh, the American citizens remembering that the soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines are simply carrying out the orders given to them by the commander-in-chief and that it is not their personal decision to make in terms of whether or not they go fight in what some may view as an unjust war, an unwarranted war, whatever it is. So separating those two and, and keeping our support behind those men and women that, that give so much on a daily basis and their families. And certainly uh, efforts that have sprung up across America now to, to make sure that we remember that these soldiers have families and to support those families in, our, in the communities uh, to the very best of our ability makes a, a much happier soldier over fighting the war and certainly one who is, is uh, much more is, is very happy when he, he returns home and finds that the family has gotten along pretty well in his absence or her absence. So those are just some small things that we can do, first and foremost. 
Well, let me take you back a little bit when you were chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the 9-11 attack. It's coming up, as I said before, on almost 11 years since September 11th occurred. At the time of the attacks, you were flying out of the country. You were actually on your way to another country and then to be knighted in England. And you were over the ocean when the first tower was hit. And you had the pilot turn around and return to the States so you could get to the Pentagon as soon as possible. While you were on your way back, I'm curious, what was really going through your mind uh, when you heard about the attack, number one? And number two, what did you think at the time was the cause of the attack? And, and then how's your reasoning changed or has it changed differently now as compared to then? The, uh, all, everything that you stated, Jimmy, is uh, 100% correct. And when I heard the first tower had been hit, the first thought I had was that has to be the most egregious pilot error in history or that's a terrorist attack. Uh, and the weather I knew was very good up and down the East Coast that morning. The crew had briefed me when I got on the aircraft. And so the hair on the back of my neck stood up a little bit when I heard that. And then when they said the second one had hit, I didn't hesitate at that point. I said, turn the plane around because it was obvious to me that it was a terrorist attack, and I'd have been willing to bet a month's pay that it was, in fact, al-Qaeda without taking a look at any of the intelligence. But everything that we had seen in recent months had indicated that al-Qaeda was continuing to try to come up with a plan to get at us. So we didn't know what it was going to be, but we knew it was just a matter of time. So when on the way back, what I was really thinking about was, how are we going to get organized to carry this fight to al-Qaeda on a worldwide basis? Because, you know, they operate in about 70 to 80 countries. They've got pretty good operational cells in that number of countries. And so it's, it's more than just going after them in Afghanistan. You've also got to worry about some of the other major hubs they've got because if you shut them down in Afghanistan and they just switch to Indonesia or the Philippines or wherever they elect to go, then you haven't accomplished much. So it's got to be a, a global effort to keep them off balance, to go after their leadership, and, uh, and that was going to take a massive effort. And the second thing I was concerned about coming back was knowing that I would be going to a National Security Council meeting and that everyone's going to want the military to do something, you know, almost retribution to go after al-Qaeda uh, or whoever it turned out to be, but I was confident it would be al-Qaeda, then I thought, you know, we really don't have a, 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 a lot of good targets we can go after because it's like fighting organized crime. You go after the bosses, you go after their sources of income, but you don't have infrastructure. You don't have tanks and airplanes and things of that type that the military uh, has a lot of precision munitions and things of this type that we can use to carry out attack very effectively, very efficiently, and, and very rapidly. So uh, those were the things that were going through my mind as, as I flew back toward Washington. As you look back on it now, is your reasoning pretty much the same? Uh, and And I think that you commented on the last show that, that um, President Bush asked you what was going on, and, and at the time, you know, you're, you, you were pretty certain what was happening. In fact, you had foreshadowed it in a speech that you had made, I think, a week or two before it happened, that you put everybody on notice that you felt something was going to take place. Uh, that's exactly right, and, and that uh, I really haven't changed. I, 
you know, the goals of this organization are are still the same, and they have long memories. and And in their minds, in in their minds, it's uh, time passes very very fast. You know, what we consider to be very very fast is very slow to them, and so they'll keep trying to plot and come after us. And so we have to keep going after them just as vigorously as we did on on 12 September of 2001, and not let up until every last member of that organization has been uh, has been dealt with uh, because if we do let up then they will once again become a very formidable force and they will come after us in the same manner they did on 911 what was the immediate decision for retribution at that point in time to do what uh, just to kind of put things in perspective from a historical point of view well, it was it was basically for the first time we got presidential approval to go after the Taliban, which is as you remember was the ruling government of Afghanistan. And up until then, uh, when Secretary Cohen and I had gone over and made recommendations for going after the Taliban, we had been reminded that they were a nation state. And you know, although Al Qaeda was operating out of out of Afghanistan, which was ruled by them, that uh, we would not be allowed to go after the government as such. And I, you know, President Bush changed all that in his speech when he said, "If you're, if you help, aid, assist, uh, or in any other way uh, are associated with a with a, a, a terrorist organization, then we will consider you to be a part of the problem, and we'll come after you as well." And so, there's a total different perspective on it right now than there was uh, prior to 9/11, and I think that's a good thing. Well, that was one of my questions: is how do you believe? That 9/11 has changed the American vision of foreign policy in the Middle East, and do you believe that that vision has been achieved, or has it changed significantly? I, I believe that we recognize now that that we cannot afford to stand by and watch terrorists have a base of operations in any p- particular country. Uh, I am quite concerned that there are countries out there that still are plotting against us, and I'll use Iran as as the best example, that we still want to be uh, goody-two-shoes, so to speak, and give the Iranians every opportunity. And every every time we do, we seem to get another slap beside the head. The uh, the Iranians are bad actors. They are the largest supporter of, of uh, terrorism in the world today. And yet we seem to think that maybe your hope springs eternal, I guess, that they're going to change overnight. And and they haven't. I mean, they tried to blow up the the uh, Saudi ambassador right under the State Department's nose in Washington. And so I think it's time that we uh, that we deal with the Iranians. And the other thing I think we have to be careful about in the Middle East, we don't have a very well understood policy right now in the Middle East in terms of who it is we really support. And I know that a lot of the leaders there have got to be very concerned when they see a long-term friend of the United States like Mubarak thrown under the bus very early on. And and whether he was good or bad is irrelevant. He had been a great uh, friend of the United States, and almost within the first hours, we had moved away from him and and basically just uh, let let it, it take its course. And, and so as we look at now who's going to rule Egypt, I think there's a lot of concern about where Egypt may go in the future as vis-a-vis its friendship with the United States. And we've got a number of other countries in the Middle East now that are, are friends of the U.S., have been very good at supporting the U.S., 
sometimes, you know, it's in a non-public manner because they have their own concerns about the extremists in their countries. But we really have to have a very comprehensive foreign policy, I think, that kind of spells out for the nations and makes it very visible that when you're a friend of the United States, there's a real benefit to being in that position as opposed to some of, some of the others that you could become associated with. What actually leads me to a question, because, you know, when you watch these conflicts and you see the, the devastation amongst the people and, the, you know, and they refer to it as a civil war maybe and whatever, and we watch this, you know, daily and, and nightly, and, you know, it looks to me like we really don't have a, a, a policy, that we really don't know what to do, and that, you know, the U.N. is blocked by Russia and China, and, you know, Syria is a perfect example of it. Clearly, Iran supports Syria. Clearly, there's problems in our sitting back and not doing anything. And at the same time, there are, there are politicians who say we should. There are like like McCain. There are some who say we shouldn't. There are some who try to say we have to do it, you know, like we did it in Libya with NATO. Yes. And my question, you know, is one of the things that is holding us back. We're just not really sure who we're supporting when we go in there, like the Egypt situation, which clearly has become a bit chaotic. Number one, and number a lot chaotic, and number two the Muslim Brotherhood coming into power, and we just don't really know who our friends are. So is that one of the things that, that holds us back because we don't want to support a regime that could turn out to be our enemy? I think that clearly is, is one of the things that holds us back. It, it's almost like we want to wait and, and, and see them uh, unfold their hands so we can see whether they're holding aces or kings, so to speak, before we make our decision as to who we're going to put our money on. And uh, at some point, you have to you have to decide who's who has the platforms, the values, the the things that are most aligned with what with what we feel is right. You know, there's what's best for the people of that nation, and say that's the country that we're going to support. And I know it's very complicated, but in in the long run, you can't you can't go in early on. I don't think and have a have an outfit that has supported the U.S. the way Egypt has, both the military as well as Mubarak. And then suddenly turn around and even think about you supporting an organization like the Muslim Brotherhood, for which you know absolutely nothing about, and that maybe is going to turn out to be a pretty bad actor, at least with the military there, with the with those guys that have been around for a long time. Almost all of them were in office when I was when I was in office, and they're still there. We know who they are. We know what their platforms are. And they are people that you can work with to get a legitimately elected uh, democratic government within Egypt and not just decide that because someone stands up very quickly and says, I want to be the, uh, the ruling government, that we're going to support them. And I think the other things we have to watch for, Jimmy, is as a good example, you know, Maliki very quickly in, in, uh, in Iraq now is becoming very tight with the Iranians. It's, I think today, you know, from my perspective, the Maliki government in Iraq is a better friend of the Iranians than, than he is of ours. If you gave him a choice, uh, let, this, let him decide who he's going to vote with, he'll go with the Iranians. And so the, and we can see that Karzai in Afghanistan may end up going the same way. And so in some cases, I think that has to be part of our assessment as to what it is we can accomplish in some of these countries before we make the decision to go into the country or how well, long it, we stay once, once we're there, if we go. It, it actually leads me, I'd like to stay on this for a few minutes. Uh, there's a, there is a lot of uncertainty about what the U.S. should or will do about the situation in Syria. 
Is this lack of U.S. military intervention a consequence of the situations in Iraq and Afghanistan? I believe that uh, it is in large part, Jimmy, a consequence of that. I mean, it's certainly, in every, I think in any case where we are going to use our forces in the Middle East, we are far better off if we can do it as part of an international force, whether it's a U.N. or whether it's NATO, than it is if we try going it alone. I think one of the uh, one of the real mistakes that we made with Iraq was that we ended up, you know, going to, so far out on the limb that NATO backed away and said well, the Americans are going. So why do we need to invest anything? And we ended up basically, with the exception of our good friends the Brits, being uh, in a fight by ourselves. So I do believe that we need to be. Uh, we need to be trying to engage the other countries, the international community, early on and building among them a consensus to go with us. If the Russians or the Chinese want to block the, uh, the U.N. from doing anything, then maybe we turn to, to NATO, which can't be blocked up by them as the arm that would intervene. And certainly in most cases in the Middle East, they've got more at stake than the United States does, and that they're even more dependent on the, uh, the oil and the resources from that area than, than the U.S. is. So if we work that hard, the diplomatic piece of it, the political side of it, uh, we stand a much better chance of being successful militarily for the long run. Well, I'm curious, uh, because we did that in Libya, and it seemed to work. Uh, and yet, you know, I would ask kind of, you know, what do you think uh, President Bush would have done regarding Syria? You know, how would he have handled the situation Two, how you, what, what would you recommend we actually do right now? Cause, and then thirdly, what plans do you think the president and his military chiefs have for that area uh, if President Obama were to decide that the U.S. had the imperative to intervene in Syria to, pr- to protect the civilians of slaughter, what military options would be available to him? Because it's very hard, uh, you know, being, being in the military or not being in the military, to watch every single night just the slaughter that's going on in Syria. I mean, it just—it just—it's—it's it's agonizing to watch it. And yet, you know, you look back on Egypt, you look back on Libya. There's just such a lack of clarity about what's really going on and what's really at stake here, and who's really in control, and how much of this is—is—is—is is, is, is Iran behind, and how much of it is a real terrorist cell, you know, behind it, and and. So many questions, and yet you watch civilians just being destroyed and, and systematically slaughtered. You know, it, it, I'm sure everybody who turns it on and watches it uh, has questions. So how, what do you think Bush would have done? What would you recommend, and where do you think Obama's at on this? Well, Jimmy, it's awfully difficult to put myself in the position of President Bush, but I, will, I, would, I would think that President Bush, number one, would have pushed would have used this would basically have done the same thing up front. I think he would have pushed NATO early on to mm-hmm. try to get involved and I believe that would be true because the stress and strain on our forces with our engagement on the ground in Afghanistan and, and Iraq has clearly taken a toll. It, it, it's been a stress on the entire armed forces. And so trying to get someone else, in particular NATO, to step up to the plate, if you will, and and, and render more assistance in that case than they had in Afghanistan or Iraq, I think is, is, uh, was the right thing to do. Uh, to use more of the Afghan model, but to try to let them even be more forceful in their leadership role of it, not just uh, providing troops there. So I think he would have pushed hard to do that out of, out of necessity. 
Uh, secondly, I believe that was the right thing to do, the right way to, to, to handle it in terms of letting NATO take the lead, but remembering that America is a key part of NATO. And, you know, every meeting that I was in, in at NATO, uh, everyone always kind of watched what's the American going to do, what's the American's position going to be on this. And uh, although there are other countries that uh, should be able to pick it up and run with it, most of them have fought one another at one time, and so there's a great distrust uh, within that group even today based on wars that were fought two and 300 years ago. And so the Americans provide the glue that kind of holds it together, pulls it together, just like we did when we did the Kosovo operation, which was NATO's first time out of the box as a, as a fighting force. And it was clearly the Americans that were in the lead of it, but the rest of them contributed uh, almost, and they, they contributed commensurate with their capabilities. I'll put it that way. There are certain things they just don't have, like the electronic warfare aircraft, the command and control aircraft, et cetera, where the United States has made heavy investments in those areas, and, and that's a key part of your war fighting when it comes to an air war. And so we provided that. And I think maybe we tried to low-key it a little bit too much in the Syrian operation and let NATO run with it all together, and that hasn't proved to be nearly as successful as Kosovo was. And so my, uh, my, the way ahead, I think, is to keep the same model that you've got right now but become more engaged with NATO and make sure that we've got – that we're providing everything that they need in order to make this a success and to do it quickly. And if it, if it can't be done, if we don't have the right leadership there, then just like we did in Kosovo, we need to, we need to offer up what it's going to take to keep the, uh, the loss of life from the uh, innocent people that are getting killed in the process. Well, um, I wish we had you in Washington right now. Uh, it's time for us to take a short break. This is Jimmy Gould, my special guest and personal friend, General Hugh Shelton. Current Life is sponsored by Smartwater and AdSpace Mall Network. Please stay tuned. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you have career aspirations that seem beyond what you think you can afford? At Ohio Midwestern College, you can transform your hard work into a bachelor's degree in business administration, education, or Christian ministries. Call 1-888-887-4300 or check out www.omw.edu to learn how you can afford a fully accredited degree today. Ohio Midwestern College. Affordable. Professional. Genuine. Our open enrollment starts today. Call us now at 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. That's 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McClune will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most, and by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. I'm here with my special guest and friend, General Hugh Shelton. I'd like to take a moment to mention that this episode of A Current Life will be archived not only on our website by going to voiceamerica.com, clicking on the Variety Channel, and then clicking on A Current Life, but also on the Armed Forces Radio Network. You can visit their website at armedforcesradionetwork.org, where you can also learn more about their project, Operation Hire a Vet. We're looking forward to working with them on several shows that are planned for the near future. Um, General Sheldon, I'd like to just... Uh, uh, kind of moved to this subject. You served our country for many, many years and held the most powerful military position in the United States, probably in the world. And for that, our gratitude goes beyond words. Based on your time serving in the military, does the U.S. military have institutional interests that conflict with those of other branches or other departments of the U.S. government in regard to our U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East? Uh, Jimmy, I, I do not think that we do. In fact, I think that uh, as we speak today, there is more and more interest being shown in Washington now in terms of having the various branches of our, our government pulled together in overseas operations than at any other point in our history. Uh, it, one thing is for sure, you know, unless you use all the tools in America's kit bag, that being diplomatic, political, informational, financial, etc., you're not playing with the full deck. And in order to have the most successful operation, it's it's got to include all the use of all those tools. And I think there's a greater understanding today than there ever has been at any time in, in our past history. As you look back on 9-11, and you've told your story on the prior show, but I would like to touch a little bit about what was going on, the chaos that was going on. I mean, at the time when you had the plane turn around, um, you know, and you did so without without permission, you said it's better to ask for forgiveness after the fact because they weren't letting any planes in, in, in the airspace in America because I guess nobody knew what was really going on. Um, what What is your kind of looking back now over a decade, back on that attack, uh, does it tell you about, kind of your life and the life of the military and the fact that at that time you're the most powerful military man in the world and the responsibilities that you must have felt and what you had to do and that you really didn't even have time to have the emotion, even though I'm sure it was just gut-wrenching, because you had to move to those levels of, 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 of what your responsibilities were. And I'd like you to kind of recount what some of your efforts were when you were able to touch down and, and what, what happened? Because a lot of people may not have heard the first show. Well, certainly, uh, Jimmy, the, uh, the, I felt the weight of that office probably more so at that point than at any other time in the past uh, three years and, and ten months. But uh, I also had a great deal of confidence that we had the wherewithal to deal with it because you know, we have the greatest Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps in the world, and when you put their 
their capabilities together. I mean, it's the complementary capabilities of each of these services fighting together that gives you makes us such a uh, a preeminent power. Preeminent power. And I knew that I had that kind of a team behind me, that the great men and women in the military would be able to carry out whatever mission uh, was deemed appropriate after we had decided who did it to us and what it was going to take to, uh, to go after them. And so I was very competent on, on that side of it, but it all starts with the intelligence from the, uh, from the community that can tell us who the enemy is and, and who is it that we ought to be going after to make sure we get that piece of it right. And so uh, that was the first thing that I was very concerned about. And then when I got back to the uh, to the Pentagon, I had to go through a uh, I had to go through a, a couple of uh, attacks from the left and right, if you will, in preparation for it, because there were certain elements there that wanted us to uh, uh, make attacking Iraq a part of going after Al Qaeda. And uh, it was very clear by the time we started putting our plan together on the night of 11 September that, that we would have to go to the, to the White House with the next morning that al-Qaeda was, in fact, responsible for it. But uh, there was still an element there that wanted us to make attacking Iraq a part of it and use that as, a, uh, as kind of a, an enabling factor, if you will, to go ahead and take out Saddam Hussein. But, of course, when you're going to go to war with someone, you want to make sure that you, you've got the justification to, to start a war. And so there wasn't, there, that just wasn't there. And so that was getting, pulling together the plan and being ready to talk to the president the next morning about what, we, what capabilities we had in the military to deal with al-Qaeda was basically the thing that occupied my wait, my hours from the time that I returned around 4 o'clock in the afternoon on the 11th until the White House meeting the next morning at 9. Did you get any sleep at all? I mean, what, what was your, you know, your own physical and mental state like? Uh, Jimmy, I, mean, I, so I worked until about probably about uh, 1 o'clock in the morning. And then, of course, I'd been flying since about 5 that morning, so I did go home and uh, took a shower, got about two hours of sleep, put my uniform on, and headed back to the, to the Pentagon to get the uh, – I had been working on the briefing that we'd give the president the next morning, so I left at 1, and now the, the, uh, all the young majors and captains jumped on it and you know, used PowerPoint to turn it into a de- decent type of a presentation for the president. And so then I went in, and about uh, 5.30 or 6 o'clock, I started reviewing uh, the, uh, the work that had been done by them in preparation for that first meeting. All the time as you spent in the military and, and all of the, what I, I guess I'll use the term, dress rehearsals, no one ever, um, I guess from a civilian standpoint, really knows is pre- or is prepared for what, took place that day. I think there was such shock around the world, and particularly in New York and particularly in, in America. How, do, how does your mind get your arms around something like this? Is it the training in the military? Is it the fact that you've prepared for this, that you know that it's a possibility every day that you get up, that this can happen, and yet the rest of us just go through our lives, you know, one step at a time? Well, it, it, the training, I can't say enough good about it because it basically I, for about it being a member of the Airborne and Special Ops uh, Commands for 
about uh, the last 25 years of my career, I'd lived with a beeper. As we, you know, in those days we didn't have cell phones, so it was a beeper, and I'd lived with a beeper for 25 years. And being normally only about two hours away from knowing that I might have to deploy, and so it it, it really and all the all the training tests that the Army puts you through and all the other services put you through now. Uh, is one that that makes you think under pressure and and always makes time of the essence. You know, you never have enough time, and so uh, this was just a continuation. And you you get you have systems that have been put in place to allow you to deal very rapidly, quickly, and efficiently within a crisis to come up with the right solutions to look at a number of different courses of actions that might be available and to decide which one you're going to recommend to the president. Uh, of those that are available or to the Secretary of Defense and then to the President. But uh, it really, the, the training really is what, you know, there's an old saying that says when uh, when when the, the crisis takes over, training kicks in. And uh, it's, it's almost prior conditioning that you've been, it's kind of like an athlete, I guess, you know, under certain things he does X and under other things he does Y, and that's the way the military works as well. I always felt uh, I only had a chance to meet President Bush once, and I actually liked him a great deal. Um, didn't always agree with him, but 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 liked him. I did. Um, my question is, he seemed his best at that moment that this was happening. Is that a correct assessment? Uh, the thing I liked uh, most of all, probably about uh, President Bush, yeah, I mean, a lot of redeeming features with him. But you know, number one is uh, he was very loyal to the team that was around him. You didn't have to worry about someone covering your six, as a fighter pilot says, or right. about being someone attacking from the flank. And the second thing was he he would make a decision very quickly. He, he didn't agonize a lot. He had listened to everything you had to say. He'd ask a lot of really good questions, and then he'd make a decision. And that's what you need in a, in a situation like this. There's not a lot of time to be going back and doing studies and forming committees and things of that type. Let me ask, one of the biggest sorrows during wartime occurs when there are civilian casualties. Is there a level of civilian casualties that's considered acceptable, if there is such a word, in regard to current U.S. military operations in the Middle East? And what factors go into such a determination? And really, who's responsible for making that analysis? Well, in the in the long run, you know, and I'll, I could use several examples, but every time that I would brief the president on a particular military operation, we would always include an assessment of what uh, the potential was for both uh, unintended consequences, if you will, of, of casualties for the uh, on the other side, uh, or of innocent civilians, what the potential for even fratricide of our own troops would be. So those were part of the risk that you assess. And, of course, the, the goal is zero. That's what you're shooting for, and that's what you'll try to achieve. And we have some tremendous tremendously good weapons these days that can allow you to do it in in ways that people couldn't even imagine a hundred uh, even 20 years ago i mean the ability now to have a bomb enter on the second floor of a building uh and take out that entire floor while doing very little damage to the top floor the one down below is is just a phenomenal capability but we have that that capability today and so you do your very best in your targeting to make sure that doesn't happen but then there's always, you know, the consequences of war. Things don't always go as planned. And even the potential for misidentification of a target. I mean, we during the Kosovo operation, if you remember, we actually ended up bombing 
the uh, the Chinese embassy, and it was a clear case of mistaken uh, target identification. Those targets were cleared by our own State Department. Uh, we had no idea that the Chinese had moved their embassy into a new building, one that was being attacked. And so those types of things will happen. Now, the clause of which called it the fog of war. But it's just things that don't always go as you plan, but we certainly try to do it. And then, you know, it gets in, into what is politically acceptable. And certainly if, if the bomb goes astray and hits, a, hits an orphanage, uh, that's, you know, almost the worst of all worlds. You've killed you know, not only innocent civilians, but kids on top of that. And, you know, it's heart-wrenching, and we'd never try to do it and do everything we could to stop it. But you, you have to, the president knows when he makes the decision that that is a possibility. Let me ask you, in your opinion, how prepared are we for the Arab Spring? To be very candid, I, I don't, that's one I don't think we saw coming. Uh, I, I, the Mubarak, uh, the attack in Egypt, maybe uh, maybe the intel guys picked it up a few weeks ahead of time that things were started, but I don't think that the State Department or even the intelligence community ever really saw it catching on fire the way that it did, saw what the impact of social media, what impact that would have. I think that came, that came out of left field at them. Do you feel that we have vital interests for the U.S. and the Middle East in general, and and do you agree with Congress pushing the president away from a policy of containment and into direct military confrontation? I uh, I do believe that uh, that the Middle East is in our vital national interest. It's the only area in the world that we have that we class put in that category. And of course, the world's economy is directly related to what takes place with the uh, with the oil flowing out of the Middle East. And so, yes, I do believe it's in our vital national interest. I also believe that we have a tremendous number of nations in that part of the world that are still good friends of the United States that rely on us to provide a, a, a secure environment in which they can govern, govern and to keep away the, uh, the countries like the Iranians. They're all scared to death of the Iranians, and they look to the U.S. to provide that umbrella, if you will, as we've done for the last 50 years. And, and to be very candid, I... I believe that uh, we we can contain and have contained, uh, and I, I don't believe that you necessarily need military intervention in all cases. That is an example. In the case of Iraq, I disagreed with attacking Iraq because they were contained. Saddam had almost nothing left. He was not a military threat. It, as we saw when we attacked and we knew ahead of time, it would only take a very small force to win that war. But then you've got to govern. You know, if you break it, you own it. And we broke it. And therefore, we had to keep the Sunni, the Shia, and the, and the Kurds from going at each other. And so you buy a lot of responsibility when you when you do that. And so I believe that wherever we can contain a government, such as if we can contain the Iranians, and uh, and they become a, a non-threat to anyone, then that's probably the right answer, vice uh, direct military intervention. And certainly if you contain them long enough, it wears them down and also takes away from their war fighting capability or their ability to sustain a war. And therefore, that's it going to be in your favor if and when you decide to take direct intervention. Let me ask, recently there were stories released about the U.S. and Israel using the Stuxnet, Stuxnet virus to try to hack into and disrupt Iran's uranium enrichment programs. What does this say about the changing relationship between the U.S. and the Middle East, and what does this mean about how the West chooses to deal with threats posed by rogue states in that region? 
Well, I think uh, in some cases that, you know, that may be beyond our control, Jimmy, to be very candid. I mean, I think that the ability to hack into nets, into the Iranians' uh, Internet, into the Iranians' nuclear programs uh, is not limited to to the uh, Chinese, the Russians, the U.S., or anyone else. About anyone can do that that has, you know, a bunch of smart guys working for them that know how to do it. And so... I believe that that uh, that's one of the tools that we should have in our kit bag. To be very candid, I I, I believe that since uh, year two, uh, 1999, when Secretary Cohen and I tried to stand up a cyber command that would have not only a defensive capability for the U.S. but also have an offensive capability, because. That just becomes another tool of war. And while we might say that's not fair, you know, wars aren't fight by people trying to be fair. And so we need to be prepared to use the tool if we've got it and defend against it if we don't have it or if we need to be able to protect our own systems. So I do believe that that's, uh, that's a key part of our arsenal of tools. Whether or not we use it uh, is a decision that the president could make, just like he makes the decision to use any of the other tools of our national power. If you were to look at the Middle East 10 years down the road, I'd like to kind of understand what it would look like if U.S. foreign policy objectives could be achieved in full and are we likely to see an increase in small targeted operations such as the drone strikes in Pakistan and Yemen and targeted raids like Osama and the pirates in Somalia versus larger invasions, occupations, or wars? And I'd like you to comment because I do think there's a lot of disagreement about how we view Saudi Arabia and their role because they seem to play both sides. Well, I think that uh, it could be said by a lot of nations in that part of the world, Jimmy, that they do play both sides. And I think the reason to me is is uh, is pretty clear, and that is they live in a very dangerous part of the world. Uh, they they're not always sure they can count on the U.S. to come to their aid if they if they get in trouble. And by they they I mean the leadership of those countries, because. Sure. As you know, they all look at a guy like Mubarak and say, well, he was a great friend of the United States. He supported him on everything the U.S. asked asked for. And still, when uh, a group started to rise up against him, the U.S. threw him under the bus. And so does that mean they'll do the same thing to us? And and that type of behavior can cause them to be even more to, – to be very careful about, number one, who they choose for friends, and number two – how public they are in their support of of those friends. And so I believe that the answer is that we need to work with individual countries throughout the Middle East. Each one of them are different. I mean, we can't just put them all in one basket and say, well, they're all in the Middle East. Each one of those countries is a separate entity, and they have their own uh, separate issues and concerns. And so I think we work with each of those governments uh, we try to make sure that they understand we, in fact, are their friends. We treat them like friends and, and develop friendships and, and develop a group of, of bilateral relationships with these countries, even as we strive to work with the G8 and with others to, to have an overall comprehensive policy in the Middle East that kind of works somewhat analogous to the way NATO works to keep them from fighting each other or from joining sides with someone that might want to fight one of the one of their their brother brother countries if you will and so that would be the way that I would approach it from a foreign policy standpoint I don't think we'll ever get them all to in 
you know, in, in my lifetime to where they all will, will be a Jeffersonian democracy. But I do believe that over time we would see each of them become more and more westernized, if you will, in the way that they deal with their people. And I'll use a couple of examples there, like in Bahrain and in Kuwait, where they have become very much more westernized, if you will, than some of the more uh, some of the other countries like Saudi Arabia and even the UAE. You know, we have a few minutes left. I'd like to ask uh, a kind of a core question because I think religion plays such an important part of of the relationships in the Middle East. Um, they probably have throughout our uh, history. Um, could you talk a little bit about how the growth of Islamic-controlled governments will ultimately find a common ground with some of our more right-winged interest groups here in America or vice versa? Is that possible? Oh, I think it's, it's uh, not only possible, but I think it's probably probable in the, in the future. You know, I, while we often fear the Islamic religion, I mean, I've got a lot of friends that are, that are uh, uh, Muslims. I've got friends that uh, that I know in all almost all those countries that uh, have got. We've got a lot of common ground together. Uh, they do not uh, view the the West to be an enemy just because we are are Baptists or Catholics or or whatever Buddhist. Uh, they they are very lenient in the way they look at. It. Now, they have their fanatics just like we have particular cults in different religions here in this country that are fanatical in their in their beliefs but uh, they're not all that way and the thing that many of those leaders have to deal with in these different countries are the fanatics in their own government if you will in their own country that are, are against them as well because of the way that they are, are more westernized if you will and westernized in their way of thinking or more democratic in their way of thinking which is contrary to the way that the fanatics believe that they should be operating. And so I believe there's common ground, and I believe that over time we'll see it, see it move more and more that way. Well, I, um, number one, want to thank you uh, again, uh, General Shelton. You've uh, inspired us with your knowledge and experience and trying to help us understand all that's going on every day that we watch so much chaos around the world, and 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 you've been a again a delight to have on this show. And I thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you as as usual. And um, for our listeners, we are uh, also, as General Shelton knows, uh, going to be working with uh, Armed Forces Radio following the um, the ascent of Denali by five uh, of our wounded. Uh, soldiers from various conflicts uh, who are ha- are amputees, and they're going to be traveling up the alley, and we're going to follow that, and and we wish them Godspeed and and all the best. Uh, our time is up. I'd like to go ahead and thank you, General Shelton, for sharing your experiences with us once again, from growing up in North Carolina to representing our country at one of the highest levels of American military and political power at the Pentagon and White House. Your experiences combined to form not only a man of the highest integrity but a humble human being and true friend. And I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning into A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off. Please join us next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, success. And, Hugh, all my best to you and Carolyn, and I hope you'll join me again on this show. I appreciate it deeply. Thank you, Jimmy. I look forward to it. Take care.
Bye-bye. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week. We'll be right back.